KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. We'll assess the threat of the Mu variant with Dr. Eric Topol. We don't need any new variants right now. Delta's bad enough. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The threat of wildfire is causing more insurance companies to drop San Diego homeowners. In total, insurers have dropped nearly 85,000 policies in San Diego County from 2015 through 2019, and it's happening at increasing rates throughout the region. San Diego's Film Out Festival returns with in-person movie events, and our summer music series highlights the music of Sonido de la Frontera. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. The number of new COVID cases in the most populated areas of California seems to be slowly decreasing again. Epidemiologists say the Delta variant, which pushed up case numbers in August to higher levels than last year at this time, may be burning out in our state. But public health officials say it's still not time to breathe a sigh of relief. As kids go back to school, weekly pediatric COVID cases nationwide have risen to 250,000 for the first time since the start of the pandemic. And California has recorded one of the highest numbers in the U.S. of a new variant called Mu. 43 cases of the variant have been reported in San Diego. Joining me is Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. Thank you, Maureen. Good to be with you. Now, so far, we've seen more than 380 cases of the Mu variant recorded in California. Is it as contagious as Delta? No, Mu is not as contagious as Delta. It has more of an immune response issue. That is, whether you had prior COVID or whether been vaccinated, it gives the immune system a tougher time that it can evade it. However, because it isn't contagious like Delta, which Delta is really like a super spreader strain, it can't compete with Delta. And what we've seen around the world is that it's fading away. So Mu won't be with us that much longer, uh, fortunately. We, we don't need any new variants right now. Delta's bad enough. Now, does Mu have the uh, possibility of making people sicker, though, if they do catch that strain? Oh, well, any any strain of this virus has that capability. It's just that it's not likely to be around much longer. But yes, uh, if someone has not been vaccinated, uh, they're likely to get uh, quite ill, just like they could the same profile as with the other strains. It just doesn't transmit. It's not nearly as contagious. So we're not going to see that many mu infections, whether in California or anywhere in the country. What do we know about how vaccines hold up against Mu? Well, we have lab studies only, and this is a very um, top flight group in Japan that just published yesterday that it is the most immune evasive strain to date. But again, I'm not concerned about it just because it's fading away in all the places where Delta has dominated. So uh, while it had a, a big run in South America, it's not holding up to the competition with Delta. As COVID continues to evolve inside the unvaccinated population in this country and around the world, should we expect to keep seeing variants? Well, if we get containment, we won't have to worry about that so much. But that's a global mission, and we're not doing too well on that just yet. Uh, in the U.S., we're driving the case burden of the planet right now. Hopefully, as you said, we're going to start to have descent from Delta, but that may not be so stable. The point being is we've got to get vaccinations throughout the world and as many of the billions of people as possible. And we're only, you know, in the early stage of accomplishing that. 
Speaking of vaccines and the immunity they give people, researchers have found what's called hybrid or superhuman immunity in some people who got sick with COVID last year and have since been fully vaccinated. How is hybrid immunity different from typical immunity? Well, it turns out the most potent form of immunity against COVID is the combination of having had COVID and one dose vaccine, at least one dose vaccine. That brings the features of the natural infection, which comes in through our airway, together with the vaccine infection, which comes in through our blood through the injection. And it provides uh, even more coverage than either alone. And that's why it's really important, I, I think, Maureen, that we should have people who've had confirmed prior COVID be considered as having one dose on the basis of that, of a vaccine. So we don't waste vaccines. And so we don't give people unnecessary side effects of vaccines if they've had prior COVID. They still benefit from one dose, but giving two doses or, or more has little incremental benefit. And where is work on developing sort of a universal pan-coronavirus vaccine? Right. That's really exciting work. And it is certainly possible and likely we can develop a vaccine that would block all future variants of this coronavirus. But we have to give it highest priority because we don't want to make vaccines one variant at a time. We want one that will work for years to come so that we can basically preempt a worse version of this virus from taking hold. When it does come to getting a booster shot, when should people get one? What do you recommend? Well, right now, I think the data are strong for people over age 60. And also because the healthcare workforce needs to get a booster because they need to be able to care for those who are sick. So those two groups, healthcare workers and age over 60, really deserve the booster if they've had a Pfizer vaccine now. that's The data are pretty strong. We're still waiting to get more data on Moderna, but it's pretty likely that will be the same groups who will derive benefit. Now, we're seeing a significant number of kids pick up COVID at school, and actually there doesn't seem to be a major concern about that. Should we be more concerned? We should be, because children are the vectors of infection to adults. And the best way right now without a, a vaccine for children below age 12 is for all adults and teenagers to get vaccinated. But we're not doing that. So we have a big gap here. And if we want to protect our kids, we've got to get everyone who is above age 12 to be vaccinated. And we have a long ways to go to get there. What have you been hearing about the vaccine for children under age 12? When, when it, do you think that'll be available? Well, the best case scenario would be November, but it could easily slip till early part of next year. So somewhere in those from two to four months from now, it should be getting an emergency authorization. Now, the Delta surge may have peaked, but it's still in circulation. Now there's the Mu variant, which may disappear faster than Delta. But we are heading into fall where respiratory viruses typically increase. So what do you think we're in for for the rest of the year? Well, we've already seen in other places in the country a lot more of the respiratory syncytial virus, RSV, uh, in kids. Remember that because they were out of school all last year, and exposure was low, that they're even more susceptible. So we're going to see flu and RSV in addition to the COVID burden, and that's going to complicate matters. In fact, what we also have seen are these co-infections where kids are getting both RSV and COVID, and some getting you know quite ill, hospitalized. So we've got our work cut out for us. We're lucky here because of our weather pattern, that that's not as big an issue where we have tough winters in, in, in the United States. But nonetheless, we've got to keep our guard up. And the other point, Maureen, is just because we descend with Delta and have less cases, that doesn't mean it'll, it won't come back. We've already seen in the UK, it's coming back and other countries as well. So the point being is if there's still people out there who are unvaccinated, that is a target for a return trip from Delta. And that's why we've got to get that rate up much, much higher. I've been speaking with Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. Dr. Topol, thank you very much. Thank you. 
With recent threats of wildfire in our region, more home insurance companies are now dropping the policies of San Diego homeowners. The cancellations are happening in multiple areas throughout the county, from rural areas to city neighborhoods like Scripps Ranch and Hillcrest. iNews source reporter Camille Von Canil has been covering this issue and found tens of thousands of policies have been dropped across the county. She joins us now. Camille, welcome. Hi. Tell us about the scale of this problem and what's at stake. So this is something that's affecting all of California, and it's certainly happened to a lot of people in San Diego County. I got my hands on data from the insurance department that broke out the non-renewals for each zip code. And in total, insurers have dropped nearly 85,000 policies in San Diego County from 2015 through 2019. And it's happening at increasing rates throughout the region. So seven out of 10 zip codes in San Diego County saw the share of policies dropped each year increase from 2015 to 2019. And ultimately, what's at stake is the affordability of owning a home because people with mortgages are required to have insurance. So if they get dropped, they have to find another policy. And sometimes they find a good alternative. But sometimes the only option left is the California Fair Plan, which is a pool of all insurers that's required to give insurance as a last resort. But the problem with the fair plan is that it can cost more and cover less. So ultimately, policyholders are left with higher costs. So what reasons are insurers giving for dropping these policies? So there can be a variety of reasons. The one that we're seeing more often is the risk of fire. So for example, I spoke to one woman in Claremont whose insurance was dropped last year and the insurance agent told her that it was because she lived in a fire zone and she lives on a canyon, but she was surprised uh, because she's never seen a fire in her entire life there. And what's happening behind the scenes is that we're seeing these devastating wildfires throughout the state. Insurers are taking bigger hits, they're seeing bigger losses, and they're reevaluating the risk they're willing to take on. Hmm. So what areas of San Diego County are being affected by this the most and why? So we've been seeing this trend in the unincorporated rural areas for for many, many years now. These are areas like uh, Alpine and Homol, even a city like Poway. So these are the areas with a high number of non-renewals and also a high spike in non-renewals. So that rate is going up. But something that kind of surprised me in this data analysis is that we're also seeing it in city neighborhoods. So that, of course, includes Scripps Ranch, which you mentioned earlier, an area that has experienced a wildfire before. uh, But it's also happening in neighborhoods with a lot of canyons and open space like Hillcrest and Claremont and Rancho Pinasquitos. So we're seeing it in both rural areas and urban areas now. And what should someone do after they get dropped? So I consulted with experts at United Policyholders and the insurance department to get tips for people if this happens to them. And the tips are to act promptly because that 75 days does kind of go by fast. So you want to start shopping around pretty quickly. And there are insurers that are still writing policies in most areas. There's a tool on the insurance department's website that lets you see which companies are writing policies in your area and see which companies are writing policies for homes at fire risk. And you also reported that some areas of San Diego County got a reprieve from losing their insurance because of a state law banning insurers from dropping policies in areas that just went through major wildfires. But that reprieve ended this week. Tell us a little bit more about that. So this is a rather new state law. And in San Diego County, the areas that were impacted by this law were 16 zip codes in East County, kind of centered around Homol and Alpine, where the Valley Fire erupted around a year ago in September of 2021. And for a year, insurers were not allowed to drop policies in those 16 zip codes. But that pause ended on Tuesday of this week. So local homeowners may start getting notices in the mail this week that their insurance companies are are pulling out of that area, given the very real risk of, of a fire. Do you foresee any legislation coming down that may prevent insurance companies from just dropping policies like this? I'm not aware of a law that would ban this 
completely, but there are steps that the state government is taking. The Newsom administration with the insurance department, uh, who is led by Ricardo Lara, he's the insurance commissioner, they're working on a set of standards that insurance companies would have to abide by. Um, And the standards would require insurance companies to basically give a break to homeowners who are taking steps to reduce their fire risk. And the idea behind these standards, which are being developed, is that uh, insurance companies would have to recognize that effort and would have to kind of keep that homeowner on their roles um, if they're taking the right steps to protect their home. But that, that hasn't been finalized yet. We're expecting it sometime this year or next. Something I know you'll be watching for. I've been speaking to iNewsource reporter Camille Von Keneal. Camille, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. It will be 20 years on Saturday, two decades since 9-11. In the hours following the attacks, while most of us were still trying to get our minds around what had happened, a select few firefighters trained in rescue operations were already heading to New York. KPBS reporter John Carroll brings us the story of two of them, young San Diego firefighters who answered the call to help. The images from that day are seared into our consciousness. The attacks at the Twin Towers, the World Trade Center, a plane slamming directly into the Pentagon, another meant for the U.S. Capitol, forced off course by a group of passengers, crashing into a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. But for some San Diegans, the memories from that day are more than images. They saw the devastation firsthand once they arrived in Manhattan to help. I was a member of the Urban Search and Rescue Team, um, California Task Force 8. I was on the Urban Search and Rescue Team. John Wood and Matt Nilsen, today an assistant chief and battalion chief, back then San Diego firefighters. We interviewed Chief Wood in front of Fire Station 21 in Pacific Beach, where a beautiful memorial stands to those who gave everything on that day. Two shiny replicas of the Twin Towers, and sitting between them, a piece of steel from the real towers. Like most of us of a certain age, Wood and Nilsen both recall clearly where they were and what they were doing when they learned of the attacks. I was um, at my home in Rancho Penasquitos and having uh, two little babies at home and then my wife and educator Shelby was um, at work. I had um, laid down because I learned to sleep when the babies sleep and she called me and said, hey, put the news on real quick. So I know everybody does remember those. I mean, I remember it like it was yesterday. Nielsen was out for a morning jog. Back then, there was no cell phone coverage where he was running. As soon as I got back into cell coverage, because I was down on the beaches um, west of the Sunset Cliffs, and I got back and my wife had called and and explained to me what was going on. And then I uh, finished my jog and got back home was watching the news. But there was very little time to watch the news. Wood says within a half hour of seeing the devastation unfold on TV, he was packing his bags. We were, you know, packing up and getting ready to go, getting down to our, our rescue warehouse and getting ready to take 80 members um, to there, be ready within four hours. Matt Nilsen's specialty back then, as it is today, was communications. He arrived before his fellow San Diegans, there just hours after the attacks. The job of setting up equipment so people could communicate was urgent. So I was on a forward mission and was on top of the Western Union building the very first night um, that was looking directly into the pile. 
and uh, was climbing up on scaffolding and installing antennas and establishing communications for a task force. Nielsen says he was as prepared as he could be for the site that would greet him in New York. And though Ground Zero was a nightmarish place at that time, he's thankful his career called him to be in that place at that moment. Everybody wanted to do something, and I just consider, I was considering myself lucky because I had a mission to do. Or at least I should say, looking back, I consider myself lucky because that's something that I could focus on. Once his job setting up radio communications was complete, Nielsen joined his fellow firefighters down on the pile. Both he and Wood say there were some truly awful moments. We covered, recovered a lot of body parts while we were there. And, and you know, you, you, the biggest thing is, if, um, is the smell, right? So a lot of times we're in, in horrific low light conditions, but you could smell something. And so we'd bring our dogs in if we, we could get them in there. People don't, they lose sight on how important closure is. If you've ever lost somebody, you want to know what happened. Now, 20 years later, a good place to get a visceral feel for what happened is found downtown at the San Diego Firefighters Museum. There are displays that bring back the unspeakable loss suffered that day, including a picture showing the faces of all 343 New York City firefighters who lost their lives in the towers. In total, more than 3,000 people died on 9-11, and the message from back then is the one hometown heroes like John Wood and Matt Nilsson still remind us of today. Never forget. John Carroll, KPBS News. Shortly after the attacks committed by al-Qaeda terrorists on 9-11, President George W. Bush told the American people, The face of terror is not the true faith of Islam. That's not what Islam is all about. Islam is peace. Bush was applauded for his words at the time, but they did not stop a wave of hate and harassment directed at Muslims across the U.S. Hate crimes in California jumped more than 15% that year, and the number of hate crimes against Muslims and Arabs in America has never returned to pre-9-11 levels. Many local members of the Muslim community found themselves becoming spokespeople for their faith and their community in the years after 9-11. Ten years ago, on the anniversary of the attacks, we spoke with Marwa Abdallah, a young mother in San Diego who has since gone on to make a career of building understanding between non-Muslims and the Muslim American community. And it's a pleasure, Marwa, to have you come back. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much, Maureen. It's good to be with you. Last time we spoke, you shared what witnessing the TV images of the attacks was like for you as a college student in Texas. Can you share that story again? Sure. Like so many in the United States and, and around the world, I watched the events of 9-11 unfold in real time. And as someone who identifies as Muslim, as someone who identifies as an American, you know, I was just horrified. I was a college student at the time. I was and still am a long distance runner, uh, had just finished our morning workout in Texas. And watching that, not only was I horrified at the loss of innocent life, but as the events unfolded and as we came to know about the attacks, I felt like my own faith had been implicated in a way that completely went against everything that I knew of Islam and everything that I had ever heard about my faith and the way that it should be practiced. And on that day, at that time, you made what some might consider a curious choice. You decided to put the headscarf on, the hijab. Why? That's true. That was pretty much the first thing I did upon returning to my dorm room, because I looked in the mirror and I said, you know, I'm not going to allow people who are purporting to act in the name of Islam speak for Islam and Muslims. I don't think that any person of a minority or marginalized group should be asked to represent their entire group. That's unfair. But for me, it was very important that people knew in that moment that I was Muslim and that this was a very important and salient part of my identity. And that for me, whatever good I was doing on, on a personal level, that stemmed from my religious identity. And so making that choice to wear hijab Everyone was very concerned for my safety, but I felt that perhaps was one of the most important things I could do in that moment. And what reaction did you get when people saw you with that headscarf on? 
You know, I think a lot of people were interested, as you said, in having someone speak on behalf of the Muslim community. And so I began receiving a lot of invitations to speak from the vantage point of a visibly identifiable Muslim woman. And I accepted those invitations. And in the past two decades, that really has become a large part of the work that I do. But the work I do has taken on a much larger role, I believe, because now I'm actually researching some of the systemic factors that play into anti-Muslim discrimination and Islamophobia. What was it like for you when you and your family first moved to San Diego in the years after 9-11? What kind of welcome did you find? You know, I found that San Diego was a very welcoming community. I think that we are blessed to have a lot of diversity in our community and to have efforts at inclusion. Uh, That's not to say that we don't have our problems. You know, nationwide, Muslims are the most likely faith group to report that they have been religiously discriminated against. Half of Muslim families say that their children have been bullied in public schools. And my research in San Diego has shown that we are not immune to those problems. Muslims are discriminated against. They do face a whole host of different types of prejudices and and discrimination. And Muslim children in our school systems do face bullying, both from their peers and from their teachers. You know, Marwa, in a sense, uh, as you say, your immediate reaction after 9-11 to stand up for your faith and your community seems to have been a guiding principle for your career. Can you tell us about your effort to help inform media coverage of Muslim communities? Sure. So that has been an area of interest of mine probably since before our last interview. So I've been working on representations of Islam and Muslims in the United States for over a decade. That led me back to the School of Communication at San Diego State University. And I'm now a doctoral student and Jacobs Fellow in the Department of Communication at UC San Diego. And in the context of that work, I've also partnered with the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding. And one of the projects that I took on with them was to create a guide for media professionals and journalists on how to cover American Muslims confidently and creatively. Um, You know, Maureen, if a Muslim perpetrator is accused of a violent plot, they receive 770% more media coverage than a non-Muslim counterpart accused of plotting a similar violent act. And Muslim perpetrators who carry out ideologically motivated violence, they receive significantly more media attention. The word terror and terrorism are associated with Muslim perceived perpetrators far more often than they are others, even though law enforcement um, agencies such as the FBI have consistently stated that white supremacists and right wing extremists pose a far greater threat to national security than any other ideologically informed types of violence. And so I think that media coverage does have a lot to do with what Muslim Americans um, are experiencing every day in their lives, the types of discrimination they face. And, And I'm really committed to helping equip journalists cover a very diverse and complex set of communities in the United States. As we face this 20th anniversary of the 9 11 attacks, what remains to be done for Muslims to take their rightful place in American society? You know, 50% of U.S. Muslims um, are native born. So Islam, you know, is often framed as foreign and other, but Islam is an intricate part and Muslims have played an intricate role in the building of this country. They are not just, you know, good and bad from the security lens that we often frame them through, but they are doctors, they are um, healthcare workers, teachers, physicists, cab drivers, restaurant owners. You know, they give to philanthropy and they help engage others in their community to solve common problems. And so that perhaps is one of the most important steps that we need to take is, is acknowledging that and then coming together to really challenge bigotry in all of its forms, to challenge these different types of racisms in all of their forms. I've been speaking with Marwa Abdallah. She is a doctoral student at UC San Diego in the Department of Communication. She spoke with us at the 10-year anniversary of 9-11. So pleased to have her back to speak with us again at the 20-year anniversary. Marwa, thank you. Thank you, Maureen. It's good to be with you.
Filmout San Diego's LGBTQ Film Festival returns to in-person events tonight with a co-production from Estonia and Great Britain called Firebird. Based on a true story, the film begins at a Soviet airbase during the Cold War. KPBS cinema junkie Beth Akamando spoke with director Peter Raybane and director-co-writer Tom Pryor. So Peter, how did you come across this story for Firebird? Well, the story actually reached me uh, through a friend who is the uh, founder of Black Knights Film Festival in Estonia, Tina. And um, she was approached by a Russian journalist who was showing around Sergei's autobiography with the intention of uh, finding somebody who would love to turn it into a film. And I read this over a weekend in my broken Russian, cried a bit and just felt like have to make this into a film and and also I, I was really amazed at how could such a forbidden love story have existed in the Soviet Air Force at the time at the height of the Cold War and it's a story of Sergei whom Tom plays a young conscript waiting for the end of his military service when a new maverick fighter pilot Roman arrives at the base and both Sergei and his best friend Luisa Uh, fall in love with Roman and their ensuing story through the years ending with the Afghan war. And Tom, what was it about the character that appealed to you and that you really wanted to tap into? The first thing I remember like when reading this story was that it was in such an extraordinary circumstance, extraordinary background. And then also it really appealed to me and the kind of fascination of where friendship becomes something more. What will you do after you leave the base? Go back to the farm, support my mother, find work. Couldn't you support her even better if you studied in Moscow and got a job at Mosfilm? <laughs> I'd never get in. How do you know? And that's always been like a line that's really fascinated me between two people, regardless of of their kind of orientation or background, but really about kind of going like, hmm, like how does this become something else other than what it appears to be? And then really this sort of like opening up on a really kind of like soulful basis. The story is for me so curious in how two kind of souls really kind of come together and are in this sort of like intertwined love in this very unusual circumstance. And Tom, your character, Sergei, eventually turns to acting. And talk a little bit about how he channels those personal feelings he has into becoming an actor. Sergei's love for theater, that you know, he loved theater as a child and then something happened which sort of stopped him being that interested. And it's kind of like through getting to know Roman that he sort of like reawakens this this love for theatre and, you know, is is courageous enough to follow his heart, not only in love, but also in his dreams. And so, yeah, when he gets to theatre school, you know, he manages to use some of these emotions which he's experienced at the Air Force base and speak about them, obviously, in quite a descriptive way at drama school and, you know, I very much enjoyed writing this little episode around the the relevance to Romeo and Juliet and Sergei arguing with, with one of his colleagues about it, actually, at the drama school. If Juliet had just married Paris, who's smart and wealthy, the man of wax, then this terrible tragedy would never have it's happened. love for convenience. That's not true love. Oh, really? And how does true love behave? You can't stop thinking about the other person. You have to be with them no matter what. But she could save both their lives and they could still meet up in secret. And only live half a life. Romeo doesn't just go, I defy you stars, to see her in secret. Not when he's madly in love. I just think there's such an amazing parallel to be able to argue from any direction, really, you know, like, what does true love do and how does true love behave? And, like, you know, Sergei can talk from it. In this perspective, as a young man, from that perspective because he's felt that and it's real and so then there's a few more moments where we see Sergei doing the acting in in the film and the Shakespeare quotes that we decided to put in really are for me personally actually very resonant as as Tom 
and also I think are kind of critical to the message of the story. But also one fascinating fact really about the real Sergei is that he began every single chapter pretty much of his original story with a Shakespeare quote. And Peter, what was it about making this film that you wanted to say now and to connect with audiences now? It's really uh, heartbreaking and, and in a way scary to see what's going on around the world really in the last 10 years. I mean, you know, look at Iran or Afghanistan, you can get killed for who you love and executed officially by the state. And Russia has is, is been worryingly actually going also back towards much more discrimination and and really hate speech and hate crime over the last eight years since the introduction of this uh, new laws against uh, quote-unquote homosexual propaganda. So I think it's, you know, it's a subject I could talk about for hours, but it's important to tell these stories. And I feel it's really important to also tell these stories to the uh, audiences in those countries so that they, the ones who are having to suffer see that uh, that there is hope and others... Uh, I trust will will create a bit more compassion and understanding at least. And in addition to the challenges of just telling this emotional story, you also have the challenge of you're trying to depict the military in 1977 and have these planes and these fighter pilots. How difficult was that for you to do? Uh, that was probably the biggest challenge, especially since it's my first feature. So uh quite a bit to uh, tackle but we had an amazing team and we still found huge amount of original locations i think we shot the film in estonia russia and malta and in estonia we had about 46 locations so we found authentic period barracks of the soviet border guards hangars of the air force and really fixed them up and used as much as possible and then uh, found an old meek 21 that we had to transport uh, across the country and close roads at night time and uh, even reach the national news with that that there is a soviet fighter plane uh, uh, traveling around in Estonia. So it was fun and it was not uh, definitely an easy production, shooting underwater, shooting theater, shooting ballet. Um, one thing that was really amazing is that we put on the production of Firebird, especially for the movie. And, um, and I almost felt like, wow, I'd love to make a ballet film because you know, putting the steady cam in there with the dancers and getting the close-up is something you don't really often see in traditional theater recordings where they just put white shots and and close-ups and that's it so for me that was a really cool bit of the whole production of actually um, doing the Stravinsky bits all right well I want to thank you both very much for talking about Firebird thank you and uh, hopefully see you at the screening in San Diego soon KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. That was Sonido de la Frontera with Somos Sonideros from their new album, Sonidero Guerrieros. And I want to introduce Sonido de la Frontera with Carlos Paez vocals, Luke Henshaw on production, and DJ Unite on the turntables. Thank you for joining us on Midday Edition. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Hey, so you each earned a name in your respective genres and music scene, DJ Unite and Tribe of Kings. Carlos Paez, B-side players, Luke Henshaw, Planet B. How did you three come together to start Sonido de la Fronteras? We all came together um, with the San Diego music scene, just being supportive of each other and, you know, meeting at shows. And we all came together for the love of uh, cumbia music. And DJ Unite, for people that may not know what cumbia is, can you give a little background about where it comes from and the different types of cumbia there are? Cumbia comes from Colombia. It originally actually comes from Africa, from the cumba dance. 
cumbia is a sort of festival music for Colombians, and it's a very uh, blue collar type of music. And it spread throughout uh, Latin America and in Mexico, they latched onto it really strongly and started making their own version of cumbia. And so now you can hear it basically at every family gathering. You can hear it on cars driving by with their radios pumping. So it's a rich part of Colombia's uh, cultural history as well. Carlos, how did you first discover cumbia? I discovered cumbia through my, my father, who was a musician his whole life. He started a band from Tijuana, Mexico, called uh, Los Moonlights. And they would make these records back in the days called Musica Bailable, which is danceable music. So they would always have like at least two cumbia tracks in each record, making sure you had a party song on the record for, you know, for those quinceañeras. That, that's the way the records were back then. It was like a, a mixture of different genres of music. So it'd be like two boleros, two cumbias, two ballads. Bands like Los Moonlights, Solitarios, Los Bukis, Los Freddies, all these bands would always put these records out, would always have a couple cumbia tracks because they were heavily influenced by the Colombian cumbia music, which is uh, strictly like party music back then. And Unite, same question to you. How did you first discover cumbia? Um, I discovered it a little bit differently. Being a DJ, when I was around 18, I had a friend named Johnny who wanted me to come play at his family party since I could mix records. So we would bring this big six-foot coffin filled with his uncle's records, and he would select the records for me, and I would play them. And then I started realizing what tunes were working really well at the parties, and I started really taking a liking to the rhythms and everything. So... It slowly went from that. I got a taste for cumbia around when I was 18. And from there, I started studying and getting in depth onto where it came from and who the big groups were and what styles of cumbia that I liked the best. Right. And Luke, what about you? I'm a late bloomer. I had heard it here and there, but it wasn't until um, Unite was spinning. At, he was doing double duty in downtown at a bar and an art gallery next door. So... I went next door to the art gallery and he was just playing it and the bass was just kicking and that shaker was just so hypnotizing. And three days later, I met Carlos and we just hit the studio. And for all of you, this journey started with Cumbia Mundial. Tell me about that. I call it World Cumbia and that's just the translation is Cumbia Mundial. The song just celebrates different cultures all around the world. That was Sonido de la Frontera with their song Cumbia Mundial, the track from their 2014 album. You guys do many live performances, so how does that translate to the stage? How does sound system culture um, really uh, translate to a live audience? So sound system culture has been a, a big part of my career as a DJ, of course. Um, and it's also a, a big part of uh, the cumbia sonidero movement, where you'll have uh, DJs, you know, set up big sound systems, and all the people in the neighborhood can come out, and you know, uh, you know, it's a, a, another time for them to forget their worries for a little bit and to dance. And you know, you don't, you never really hear the music correctly until you hear them through gigantic subwoofers and a big sound system. And you know, the uh, the sound system culture in the uh, sonidero culture is. Uh, similar to uh, Jamaican sound system culture in ways as well, because, 
you may just have a sound system set up in the neighborhood. It may not be at a venue, you know, and, and they play the music and everybody can come out and dance and have a good time. When we deliver our, our music live, it's not necessarily what you would consider the average band. You know, what we'll do is we'll run through the uh, turntables and the sampler and we'll have uh, Carlos singing live in front of it. So this type of setup can be used out on stage at a concert and it can also be in the middle of a club we can actually make our shows into one big dance party instead of a traditional concert uh, carlos cumbia it really is a storytelling genre tell us about the song la lucha continua uh, la lucha continua it translates to in english to the struggle continues and it's something that i'm really familiar with i'm, I'm a border child i was raised in tijuana um san diego all my life crossing back and forth. My family lived in Tijuana and my dad would always have opportunities over here across the border, my mom as well. So it was like a working family that was crossing back and forth four times a week. So I would see the third world country struggle on the Tijuana side. And I would also see the struggle here on the U.S. side, which is some of the same problems that we're facing today, like homelessness and racism. All those things are things I used to sing about back when I started having a voice in my youth as a musician. And they're the same topics that I sing about today. And here's a clip from La Lucha Continua. That was La Lucha Continua by Sonido de la Frontera from their new album, Sonidero Guerrero. For people who don't cross the border, what's something that you want them to, to know and also take away from your music? Well, I just want them to experience the music and, and to know that this music really represents them as well. It's just, you know, we're not really representing just San Diego. We are representing this whole region that we live in. And La Frontera means the border. It's a culture and it's a way of life out here. If you want to talk about food, wherever we travel to, there's no better Mexican food than Tijuana, San Diego, Mexican food, or even seafood. I mean, there are some seafood spots down south in you know, Mazatlan. But as far as food, there's no other better Mexican food in the world than San Diego, Tijuana. And I'm not talking about Los Angeles. I'm talking about San Diego, <laughs> Tijuana. And that's just food. But also, I mean, the music, there's some bands and there's some, some new music coming out of this region of this, of this South Bay, lower side, south side of the border that is really inspirational right now. It's like a new sound and it's very exciting because um, with every struggle, like this whole pandemic is a struggle in, in itself. There's always new music behind a, a new struggle. So Sonido La Frontera is definitely like a new sound coming out from all these hard times that we're experiencing right now. Yeah, if I might add also, I think that it's really important because most opinions are formed off of what they hear in the media about Mexico, especially about Tijuana. I think you really have to go down there and experience it for yourself and get a, a taste of the culture down there and, and realize that the people down there are living the life just like we're living life, and they're going through the same struggles, you know. And can you all tell me about your song, Cumbia Pacifica del Mar? Cumbia Pacifica del Mar is kind of like a visual song of taking a trip down the coast, uh, across the border, down coast through Baja. There's so many other little beach towns other than uh, Rosarito, Ensenada. San Diegans, uh, we grew up in this in San Diego, but we also, back in the days, we had the privilege of crossing the border and going to surf K38 
and going down on the Baja trip to go eat fish tacos and drink a beer. It's such a beautiful thing that we all have seemed to forgotten because of the labeling of Tijuana as the most dangerous city in the world. So this is a whole song celebrating the beautiful vibe of Baja California and, and the Ocean Pacific. I've been talking with Sonido de la Frontera members Carlos Paez, Luke Henshaw, and DJ Unite. Thank you all for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Dale la playita, mamacita, ahorita tengo algo que te quiero enseñar. Tengo una rolita bien rica, suavecita, que mamita, si te va a gustar. Vibra positiva de Baja Calipa con la cultura promesillar. Sonido de la Frontera's new album comes out September 24th. Go to kpbs.org slash summer music series for their full interview and for a video interview of Sonido de la Frontera. La playita de la orilla del mar te invita a gozar Y es casita morenita en la arena calientita Debajo de la luna llena Y la positiva de Baja Calipa con sonido de la frontera San Diego, California, Tijuana, Ensenada La cumbia pacífica del mar Vamos a ver KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a blend of computer science, statistics, and domain expertise. Learn more about University of California San Diego's online Master of Data Science program at omds.ucsd.edu.